So, last time we were all together, seems like ages to go. I don't know about you guys, seems like a long time for me, but we were looking at, uh, last time we were in uh, Genesis 34, we were looking at what a mess Jacob's family was. I mean, his daughter gets raped, and, uh, you know, Jacob makes this uh, business decision not to obey the Lord uh, in going to Bethel, but he settles down in Shechem, and uh, Jacob's failure to take control of his family, even when his boys, I mean, this was just like the darkest hour in my mind. Their boys uh, were using this precious covenant that God gave them, this covenant of circumcision, to strike a deal with, uh, uh, with Hamar and Shechem. And, um, you know, they were speaking deceitfully. They use, they use God's, you know, covenant to draw these men into this fake, uh, you know, uh, what would you say, like uh, agreement so that, uh, you know, Dinah could be Shechem's uh, wife. And all along, the, the boys just, in their heart, they just wanted to kill these guys. And that's what they did. The situation got so bad, Simeon and Levi committed cold-blooded mass murder. And then the other boys, they just became common thieves. They looted the dead bodies. They, they ransacked the houses just to see what they could get. And then they took all the women and children captive. I mean, it was just a mess. And during this whole time, the only thing that you heard out of Jacob was at the very end, he says, well, now you've done it. Now you've done it. His only concern was that the action of his boys had put him in some type of jeopardy, put his family, uh, their safety in jeopardy. He didn't even consider for a minute how God's righteousness was tarnished by the acts of his boys, how these boys lied. And again, they pulled in this covenant of God uh, into that lie. And Jacob had zero concern. We studied in, in chapter 34. He had zero concern for the people who had been murdered. He had no concern for uh, the women and the children who had been taken captive. His only uh, he was only thinking about himself, right? And what's going to happen to him. None of this would have happened if he had been where God had called him to be, if he would have been obedient to God's call. But what does he do? He stops short of what God had called him to do. And had he just been obedient to what God had called him to do, none of this ugly mess would have happened. It could have been avoided. Now, before we get going too far, it's very interesting to me. That's a dark chapter, chapter 34. Not one time is God's name mentioned in that chapter. Not one time is God mentioned in that chapter. But in this chapter, God is mentioned 10 times, and his name somehow, Israel, Bethel, is mentioned at least 11 times in this chapter. So we'll start in uh, verse 1, then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And so it's good to ask the question, when did God say to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there? When did he say it? He said it when Jacob's life was a total mess. His family life is just in shambles. I mean, it's just such a mess. What do you do when your life and your family is a mess? 
You know what? Some people commit suicide. You know, even Christians. And it's very sad uh, when, when anybody does it. But, man, it's just even sadder when a Christian does it. Some people, they turn to drugs and alcohol. You know, that's how they deal uh, with things when their lives are total shambles. You know, what are we to do when our lives are just a mess, just, you know, in shambles? Well, the answer is right here. We're to arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. And again, what's the significance of Bethel? Well, Bethel is where Jacob first met the Lord 30 years ago. When he left the land of Canaan and headed towards Padan Aram, right, he's fleeing his brother Jacob. Bethel is where Jacob sees God, has the vision of the ladder, right, sees God at the top, and he gets saved. That's happened at Bethel. He worshiped God at Bethel. He made this vow to, to God that, you know what, if you take care of me, you'll be my God. He made a vow to tithe to him. Again, Bethel is where he got saved. And God is calling Jacob back to the place where he first met the Lord. He says, come back to the place where you met me. Back to the place where you gave your life to me. Man, when your life is in shambles, what you want to do is you want to get back to that place where you first stood in awe of God. To the place where you vowed to to him that he would be your God, where, where you were worshiping in him and you were following him with all your heart, that place where you were tithing and giving uh, of yourself. Get back to the place where things were simpler, when things were clear, back to the place, Jacob, when all you had was just a staff in your hand, when it was just you and God's promises. Now, Jacob, he has flocks, he has family, he has fortunes, but you know what? He's drifted away from that first commitment that he's made to the Lord. He's drifted from simple obedience in his walk with the Lord. And God is telling Jacob, come back to me now. Come back to me and resume a close personal relationship with me that you had in the beginning. You know, it's the answer to all of Jacob's problems. God is calling Jacob to return to his first love, to come back to that first love relationship uh, because those were the days, again, of simple faith and obedience. And those are the things, those are the things that are precious to the Lord. Simple faith and obedience. And after this major catastrophe in Jacob's life, God says, Jacob, come back to Bethel. And Jacob is now ready to listen, right? God says, number one, arise, go up to Bethel. Secondly, dwell there. Pitch your tent there, Jacob. Make Bethel the place where you live, the place where you raise your family. Make Bethel the place, uh, you know, where that's your, that's your home base. And then make an altar there to God who appeared to you. God says, Jacob, come back to that first love. Come back to your first love. Dwell there. Raise your family there. Return to your first love and resume this life of worship, a life of following me that you once enjoyed. Return to your first love. You know what good advice that is for all of us. You know, our families, uh, if, if we ever find them in a mess, 
when our kids are out of control. I mean, maybe they're not murdering their neighbors. Maybe they are. I mean, I don't want to pass judgment on your kids. But the best thing that we can do as parents is recommit our life to the Lord, right? Our kids' greatest needs is our personal holiness as parents. They're looking uh, for guidance on how to navigate through the difficulties of this world. And this world is getting worse and worse and worse. This world is not the world I grew up in. Not the world you grew up probably in. You know, the best we can do as parents is be an example for our kids to follow. Well, then God said to him, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of your brother. And what's interesting about this um, verse here is that some Hebrew scholars, what they're thinking is that it seems like when we read this verse, what we're seeing is Jacob's thoughts, right? God says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar uh, to God. He doesn't say, arise, go there, build an altar there to me, right? Uh, it, It sounds like, you know, just a minor thing, but Hebrew scholars believe what we're seeing here is that that this is a thought that God has placed in Jacob's heart, in Jacob's mind. You know, there are plenty of times that God will put an impression in our heart. He'll put a, a thought in our mind, and we don't even realize it's him. You know, Jacob starts to think, you know, go up to Bethel, to the place where, you know, you first encountered God. Yeah, that's what I should do. And, and God is speaking to Jacob, but he's speaking to Jacob's heart here, causing him to think about what he should do. Jacob remembers that when he was fleeing from Esau, his brother, when his life was a total train wreck then, it was at Bethel that he met God. Jacob thinks, Bethel is where I need to get back to. Bethel is where I need to get back to so I can get back on track. Again, God is speaking to Jacob by putting these things, uh, these thoughts into his heart and into his mind, drawing Jacob to himself, leading Jacob back to that place of commitment, guiding Jacob out of a disaster into a place where he can enter into the blessings of God again. How many times does God do that for us? I mean, how many times uh, does he speak to us and we don't recognize it's him? You know, we read in Jeremiah 32, you might be familiar with the story, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying that he was to buy the field of Han, uh, it's Hanamel, his cousin. And then Hanamel came to Jeremiah saying, hey, you know what, I want you to buy uh, my field and Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 32, 8, then I knew that was the word of the Lord. Jeremiah wasn't sure before that. It was just a, a thought that he had. It was an impression that he had. And the Lord had given it to him. And it wasn't until his cousin came and said, by the Philip, that then Jeremiah realized, wow, that was the Lord. You know, often I get a thought or an impression and, I, and I'll realize sometime after the fact, Wow, that was God. That was God speaking to my heart. And Jeremiah and others, they didn't always recognize the Lord's voice. And I tell you what, it's an encouragement to me. 
It's an encouragement to me because it shows me that I'm just not being slow. It happens to others, other people too. You know, it happens to prophets. Well, and here it says God's speaking to him. But again, it seems like God is just putting these thoughts, this, this impression into Jacob's mind. Man, I need to get back to Bethel. Get to that place where God has called me so many years ago and resume a life of worship and witness to my family and those that are around me. Verse 2, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, just a side note real quick, who are the all who were with him? Probably the ladies and kids that his boys scooped up back in Shechem, right? They're the captives, right? Jacob said to his household and all those who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourself and change your garments. You know, maybe this evening you feel at a distance from the Lord. You know, that happens from time to time uh, in our walks with the Lord. Maybe you feel that there was a point in time when uh, you had a greater fire in your heart for the Lord. You know, a greater zeal for Him. Maybe you feel now like you've cooled a little bit. What do we do when we're in that place when we don't feel the Lord? When we don't hear Him the way we used to? What do we do then? Well, first off, we have to realize and we have to know this. The Lord's never left us, right? No matter how far you may wander from God, God is always one step back. He's always right there beside us, right? Ready to receive us. But when you feel far away, what do you do? How do you get back to Bethel, right? I mean, that's the kind of guy I am. Okay, tell me what I'm supposed to do, but that's not enough. Tell me how. How do I get back to Bethel? Jacob tells his family and those in his household three things. They got to do three things. First, put away the foreign gods that are among you. They had acquired idols along the way. And it's another failure of Jacob's, allowing his family to get caught up in the worship of these idols. You know, we don't worship little carved out gods in our culture. But make no mistake about it, our culture is very idolatrous, right? I mean, back in the day, uh, the worship of Ashtaroth, it was sexual. Today, it's pornography, right? Back in the day, the worship of Baal was the worship of nature. Today, it's David Attenborough on the Discovery Channel. I mean, glorifying nature. And don't get me wrong, I, I love nature myself. I, I enjoy a good nature program too. But you know, there are people that work all week just so they can get out and go for a hike. Man, the highlight of their week is get out and go, for a, uh, go skiing. Get out and go camping. You know, back in the day, they worshiped mammon. You know, that's the national pastime of our culture. You know, just the worship of money. Idolatry is so widespread in our culture and even insidious in our lives. You know, there are all kinds of foreign gods that we can pick up along the way. And we can find ourselves worshiping at other altars if we fail to keep Jesus and the Word of God at the center of our lives. And if we're not careful, it can happen before you even know it. It's so insidious. You know, anything we place before the Lord and His Lordship in our life is an idol. 
plain and simple. If you're looking to your job, if you're looking to your investments, if you're looking to our government for safety and security, it's an idol, right? Our safety and security comes from the Lord. Worrying about tomorrow instead of trusting in the Lord for today, it can become an idol. Well, how do I get back to Bethel? First off, we got to realize it's not a it's not a location. It's not a point on the map. I can't use you know my GPS on my phone to get there. It's a spiritual issue. It's an issue of the heart. And first of all, you have to put away the foreign gods, the things that have come between you and the Lord. You got to get rid of them. You know, Exodus twenty uh, verse three says it's the Ten Commandments. You know it. You shall. Have no other gods before me. And what God is saying there, he's not saying that he wants to be your, the first in your lineup of gods. That's not what he's interested in. He's saying you shall have no other gods in my presence. You know what? Your wife or your husband doesn't want you to be their number one wife or husband. Right? They want to be your only wife or husband. None of us who are married would be happy if our spouse said, you know, you have 90% of my affection. I only, I only sleep with one out of 10 other people. You know what? Nobody would uh, put up with that. We have to get rid of the idols. Secondly, he says, purify yourself. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse, cleanse his way? By taking heed according to the word of God. Verse 11. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Ephesians five twenty six. It speaks of the washing of the water of the word. Jesus said, John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus said in 15, verse 3. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And we got to get into the word. That's how we purify ourselves. We wash ourselves in the water of the word. We put away foreign gods. We purify ourselves. And then thirdly, we change our garments. Evidently, they had picked up the, the, the dress style of the people of Shechem. You know, they picked up the habit of dressing like those in the world. You know, when you're in a foreign country, uh, your clothes identify you as an outsider. I can't tell you how many times living in Hungary and Germany that we would meet somebody and they'd say, oh, you're an American. And I'd say, well, how, how do you know? The way you're dressed. And, and it's surprising that your, your clothes speak about who you are. Jacob and his family, they look like the world because they dress like the world because they had drifted. And Jacob says, change your garments. We're not going to dress like the world anymore. Zechariah 3, it's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. The high priest Joshua is standing there before the Lord, and Satan is accusing him before the Lord. As Joshua is standing there before the Lord, uh, he has... He's clothed, it says, with filthy garments. And the Lord said, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, Joshua, he, the Lord, said, uh, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, 
See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I love this story because the prophet Zechariah, he's watching this scene, and he's getting so into it. He's getting so excited. You know what? He shouts out, let him put a clean turban on his head too. You know, and it says they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. Paul writes in Ephesians, he writes to the, the church at Ephesus, and he tells us that we're to put off concerning our former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And we're to put off this old man that's decaying and growing corrupt. And we're to clothe ourselves with the new man that's enrobed in the garments of righteousness provided for us by our Savior. How do I get back? How do I get back to Bethel? It's not a place on a map that we get back to. It's an issue of the heart. It's a spiritual issue. We've got to get rid of strange gods that we've picked up. If you're not being obedient somewhere in your life right now, if you're not allowing uh, him, Jesus Christ, to be the Lord of your life right now, you need to get rid of whatever it is that's crept in that has stolen your affection. Right? You have to deal with the idols in your life. You need to get rid of that thing, that thought, you know, that action that has come between you and your Savior. If he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Put away the foreign gods and give him your heart. That's what he wants. Secondly, be clean. Purify yourself. Open the word. Get into it. Devour it. Jesus said, uh, man, referring to you and I, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Make the word of God your passion. Make knowing the word of God your passion and make being obedient to the word of God your passion. And then thoroughly change your garments. Put on the garments that he provides you. Be clothed in the garments of righteousness that he gives to his kids. And then don't allow them to be soiled by the world. Verse 3 says, Then he, uh, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the days of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods, which were in their hands, and the earrings, which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the timbranth tree, which was by Shechem. Now it's interesting to me, uh, because it not only mentions idols, but it mentions earrings, right? It, it mentions earrings, not just these foreign gods. And you know, in the Bible, the earring was um, a symbol of being a lifelong slave. Remember in Exodus 21, a slave, if he loved his master, he could put his ear to the doorpost and have it pierced and put an earring in it, and it would communicate to everyone that he's chosen to be that slave, that person's slave, that master's slave forever. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death 
and the good news or of obedience leading to righteousness. You know, I think this, the earrings, is just an indication of how far Jacob and his family have drifted from the Lord. But the good news, uh, before they leave Shechem on their way to Bethel, the house of God, they bury their idolatrous things. And you know what? It's important to note, Jacob's family only got right with God when Jacob got right with God. When Jacob made a stand, when he took a stand for God, his family responded. You know what? Men here, men online, you have to see how important our roles are in our family. When we're walking with the Lord, then our families are more likely to walk with the Lord. When we hold the things of God in high esteem, then our families are more likely to hold them in high regard also. And the converse is also true. If we walk in rebellion to the Lord, our families are more likely to walk in rebellion to the Lord. If we uh, take things of the Lord and treat them as something that's less than important, you know what? Our families are going to treat them with less esteem than, than they would normally. What we sow is what we're going to reap. If we will take a stand for the Lord, not only will our families respond, but I think people in general will respond. If we will make the Lord the center of our lives, commit ourselves to Him, just take a stand, be a light, be a voice. I think we'll see people, they'll respond to that. People are looking for someone who will take a stand for righteousness. Verse 5 says, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities uh, that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The inhabitants of, of the land didn't pursue the sons of Jacob because God protected them. You know, when you make up your mind to return to the Lord, when you have it in your heart to get back to your first love with the Lord, you know Satan's going to attack. He's going to throw everything at you, including this, the kitchen sink. He'll do anything he can to keep you from returning to the Lord. But God will protect you, right? He won't allow anything to get in the way of you coming back to him, returning to him. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's the truth. Verse 6, So Jacob came to Luz. You know, the name of the place uh, was Luz before it was called Bethel. You know, interestingly enough, Luz means departure. So Jacob came to love, Luz, that's Bethel, which is uh, in the land of Cana, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Finally, Jacob returns back to Bethel. He builds this altar there 30 years after the Lord met him. It's been 30 years. It's been at least 10 years since the Lord has told him to get back to Bethel, but he's delayed. It's interesting to me to understand that, that Jacob doesn't call this place, uh, he doesn't just call this place Bethel, which means the house of God. He called it El Bethel, right? The God of the house of God. As Christians, you know what? Especially in America, 
it's pretty much, there's a, this Christian bubble around us quite a bit. I mean, we got Christian friends. We got Christian bookstores. We got Christian uh, coffee shops. You know what? There are Christian dating apps. Can you believe it? We have so much Christian stuff around us. Often we can find ourselves coming to the house of God, but we fail to come to the God of the house of God. You know what? I hope every time you come to church, be it on a Tuesday morning when we gather men and women studies, be it on a Thursday evening like tonight or a Sunday morning, you know, my hope and prayer is that you will prepare your heart before uh, you come uh, to church. You know, prepare your heart to meet with the God of the house of God. It's so important. My concern and desire is that we come, or uh, my concern is that my concern and desire is we come with an attitude of meeting God when we come. I don't want us to come and play church. And I'm just not interested. You've heard me say it quite a bit. I want to come. I want us to come. I want you to come and experience God. We want to experience Him in His fullness. I pray that each of us would come to hear God speak to our hearts every time we come through those doors, to surrender our hearts to Him, to seek His heart. And it's taken Jacob now 30 years to come to the place where he, he's come to God. He's come to the, the God of the house. He's come to El Bethel. And here Jacob worships God. For the last 30 years, God has been faithful to Jacob. God has been patient with Jacob. God has kept his hand on Jacob's life. He's working in Jacob's life. He's been doing remarkable things. And finally, Jacob comes to God and worships him. And you know, my desire is that, that we would be known here in Truckee. We would be known in our workplaces, in our neighborhood, that we would be known as worshipers of God. That's my heart. Verse 8, now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the Timberinth tree. So the name of the place was called Alon Bakruth. Bakuth. Well, wait a minute. Who's this Deborah lady? Where'd she come from? Well, remember back in Genesis 24, right? Eleazar goes to get a wife for Isaac, get a bride for Isaac. And it's there back in Genesis 24, verse 59. It says, they sent Rebekah, their sister, away with her nurse, right? This nurse uh, was Deborah. And right now she's over 130 years old. Some scholars believe she's as old as 150 years old. She was Rebecca's maidservant and had probably, uh, you know, probably a lot to do with raising Jacob, right? Rebecca's Jacob's mom, right? And so Deborah probably had her hand in raising Jacob. Somewhere along the line, Jacob came back, probably near the area of Shechem. Rebecca dies, and Deborah comes to Jacob's camp into his family. Jacob, no doubt, just has very fond memories of Deborah. She was also probably someone who had a big influence on the younger women in Jacob's camp. And that's why they call the place where she was buried Alon Bakuth, which means oak or tree of weeping. 
right? It's probably a very emotional time for Jacob and his family now. And again, chapter 35 is a very interesting chapter because there's four burials in it. One of idols, three people get buried in this uh, chapter, three funerals in this chapter. Jacob is getting older, and God is cutting the ties of the earth in Jacob's life. None of these deaths in, is God's way of trying to defeat Jacob or break him or discouraging. God is actually reinforcing and reminding Jacob that he's a pilgrim on this earth. And Rachel is going to die in this chapter. Isaac's going to die by the time we get to the end of this chapter. And it's by the end of Jacob's life, God will have used these tragedies to smooth out the rough edges of Jacob's life. I mean, Jacob, he becomes this uh, worn, he's, he, he becomes this gem that's just worn down by God's love and mercy. You know, he becomes this gem of God's tremendous grace. And at the end of his life, we see Jacob leaning on his staff, prophesying over his sons as a great man of God. But now Jacob is slowly uh, being removing, having these ties of the earth and the world being removed from him. First Deborah, then Rachel, then Isaac. Verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. God had appeared to Jacob previously in a dream, but now it seems that God appears to Jacob right there. His eyes are open. I mean, there he is. And, and it's not until Jacob gets, and you've got to note this too, it's not until Jacob gets where God had told him to go does God appear to Jacob and blesses him and calls him by his new name. God's greatest revelation of himself comes when we're in the center of God's will, exactly where he wants us to be, walking closely and obedient to him. That's when he's revealing himself in the greatest way. Verse 10, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, right? Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God repeats this blessing that he placed on Jacob's life back in Genesis 32. He's reminding Jacob of who he is, right? It seems like Jacob, he, back in Genesis 32, he heard it, but he's slow to change. And God is beautifully continuing this work in him. God reminds Jacob of his name change. God changes his name from Jacob to Israel, which, again, it means governed by God or ruled by God. And one of the things that I love personally about the Lord is, you know what? He sees me as I am, and it doesn't put him off. He loves me. He also sees me as the man he wants me to be, and he's willing to work in my life as I surrender to him, and I allow him to have free reign in my life. And that's a blessing. That's the blessing that God reminds Jacob of. You're no longer that man who's a supplanter, you know, a conniving thief. You know, that's not you anymore. You're ruled by God now. You're governed by God now. And when our lives become a life governed by God, man, it's a blessing beyond our imagination, right? Because it's the true life. 
It's a fulfilling life. That's a life of freedom and joy. It's a life of adventure. There's nothing that can be compared to a life that is led and guided by the Holy Spirit. It's the most exciting life any one of us could live, a life governed by God. Verse 11, also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Now God reveals to Jacob that he's God Almighty. El Shaddai, right? God Almighty. But El Shaddai can also be translated the all-sufficient one. And it speaks of there's abundance for us if we'll just cling to him and draw near to him, draw from him. He is all we're ever going to need. He's El Shaddai. And God commands Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. And that's God's plans. That's God's plan for the life of, of every one of his people. His plan for us is one of fruitfulness. God wants us to, to be fruitful. He wants to use us in every aspect of our life to bring people to him. That's fruitfulness. Multiplying those that are coming to the Lord and plugging into the church. That's what he wants to do in the life of each one of us to use us, to bring glory to his name. And then God reminds him of the kings that are going to be coming from him, just the, the blessing that, that uh, is there on the, on the people of, of uh, Jacob and those of his descendants. Verse 12, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and your descendants after you, I give uh, this land. God granted Jacob just this precious reminder of his place in God's great covenant, beginning with his grandfather Abraham. God is not giving Jacob anything that he doesn't already have, that he doesn't already possess, or something that he hasn't already heard. He's just reminding Jacob, right, of what's true. And he's reminding Jacob so Jacob would be encouraged and cling to the truth. And it's the same for us today. We need to be reminded of what the Lord has for us, especially in the times we're living in. And be encouraged, and we need to hold tight the treasures we have in Jesus. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. I mean, think about how amazing that must have been. I mean, you're standing there talking to God, and then all of a sudden he just starts going up and up and up and up. Like, whoa, you know, I... Uh, yeah, it's going to be amazing someday to see the Lord in person, but then to see him ascend into heaven, wow. So Jacob set up a pillar, verse 14, in a place where he talked with him and a pillar of stone and poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. What Jacob is doing here, at least in his mind, is he's consecrating this place. If you go back to Genesis 28, where Jacob got saved in Bethel, he also set up a pillar back then. He does it again, which speaks of a fresh work of God now in his life. This happens to be the first mention in the Bible also of the drink offering. And it happens long before the second mention, Exodus 29, right? And, and the drink offering is an expression of thanksgiving. Jacob is worshiping the Lord and he's expressing his overwhelming, overwhelming thankfulness to God for all the things that he's done for him. His past faithfulness 
and his continued blessings. We have so much to thank the Lord for, his past faithfulness in our lives and his continued blessings in our lives. This is not the end for us. There's more to come and God saves the best for last. Heaven, huh? Verse 13 and uh, 15, I'm sorry. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel. We're told uh, the name of the place again. Abraham, interestingly, he built an altar here and called on the name of the Lord back in Genesis 12. And when Abraham went into Egypt and had all that wasted time and comes back into the land, he pitches his tent near Bethel and uh, builds an altar there again. Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel. And we don't know why Jacob leaves Bethel, you know, after taking so long to return to Bethel. Did God tell him to leave? You know, we just don't know. It says, and, and uh, when there was uh, but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Ephrath is the ancient name for uh, Bethlehem, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Jacob's 105 right here. He was 104 when he got uh, uh, his wife pregnant. <laughs> Should Jacob have stayed in Bethel? I mean, she's riding on the back of a camel to wherever they're going. I can't imagine that's terribly comfortable for a pregnant woman. You know, she's going to die just outside of Bethlehem. Is Jacob, for the rest of his life, going to carry that in his heart? I took my wife and loaded her on a camel in the third trimester and journeyed. Was it the right thing to do? You know, there are all kinds of things that haunt people for the rest of their lives. Sadly, you know, uh, we can be that way. Some of us are more prone to regrets than others. Honestly, when I hear people say, hey, I have no regrets, I think to myself, man, I don't know. Because it seems to me like I have nothing but regrets. You know, I, I regret how I responded to that person when they said whatever. I regret what I did in that situation when I should have done something else. I regret, you know, that, that sin that I committed. <laughs> I knew better. You know, David said, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Psalm 51.3. You know, he asked for forgiveness. He was forgiven. But David, he was ashamed of what he did. And you know what? That knowledge of his sin and his failure, it was always on his mind. You know, and I believe that sometimes, if not all the time, we're to just leave those kinds of things in the hands of God. We can't spend the rest of our life second-guessing things that we've done. We need to embrace the fact that we're forgiven and go forward in faith. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead and press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We can't allow our past decisions, our past failures to be an anchor just weighing us down in our walks with the Lord today. We need to forget the past and go for it with Jesus today. Here Jacob, he makes his decision to travel. Again, we don't know why. You know, it turns out bad. 
Verse 17, now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you'll have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, says in verse 18, I mean, we can't forget, these are real people. These things really happened. This is history. It's an unimaginable scene to me. Rachel's in labor. There's no hospital. There's no doctors with a team of nurses beside them. There's no sterile delivery room. You know, there's nobody monitoring her contractions, helping her breathe, nothing like that. You know, maybe she's, you know, hemorrhaging here. Maybe her blood pressure is just dangerously high. She, she has preeclampsia. All she has is this midwife, and this midwife is doing the best she can, not only to deliver this baby, but to encourage Rachel. Hey, don't be afraid. You're going to have a little boy. But the truth is she's dying. You know, it's so hard for me to imagine the panic that happened in that moment. You know, it's hard to imagine, you know, your wife, who you so deeply love, she's dying right there by the side of the road. All your affections have been set on her. She's been the center of your life, and she's dying. And it says, and so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. I mean, Rachel is dying, and she's, uh, as she's dying, she probably whispers out this name, Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. And Jacob, Jacob had probably given Rachel everything she ever wanted. He'd probably given into her wishes a thousand times. And before she dies, she calls her son, son of my sorrow. And Jacob must have lovingly whispered to her, no, we'll call her Benjamin, son of my right hand. They may have been the last words that she heard before she left the world. And I just can't imagine the sorrow and grief. But you know, this is a prophetic picture actually here. The 12th son of Jacob is the only son that's born in the promised land. He was named Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, but um, his father changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand, right? And it speaks of another who's going to be born just outside of Bethlehem. It speaks of Jesus, a man of sorrows, someone that was acquainted with grief, the one who bore our sorrows and sins on the cross. And Jesus is the one then who rose to, to the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us, son of my right hand. I mean, this is a prophetic picture of Jesus and the gospel. Verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on a grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's uh, grave to this day. So it seems like uh, this is what Jacob does. He sets up pillars for remembrances. He sets, he sets them up for consecration. The last part of this verse is Moses' commentary telling us that that 
pillar was still, time, uh, still there at the time that he wrote this book. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you go down to Bethlehem, Rachel's tomb is still memorialized to this day. Uh, you can see Jews worshiping there. Verse 21, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Jacob sets up this pillar. Uh, interestingly, it says Israel journeyed. At the end of this chapter, again, Isaac's going to die. This chapter, four burials, three funerals, right? They buried all their idols, putting them behind them. They buried Deborah, the one who had cared for Jacob since he was a little boy. They buried Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife. And before the chapter's over, they're going to bury Isaac, his father. For any of us that are here, any of us that are watching online who has buried a spouse or a parent or a good friend, I mean, you can hear about these kinds of things and have compassion on those who go through them. But it's one of those passages in the Bible that until you go through them for yourself, you can't really understand. Right? It's not until you watch a parent take a last breath. It's not until you kiss a spouse goodbye for the last time. It's not until then that you actually understand and can say, it's all about what's on the other side of that breath, right? Once you've gone through that, it's then you understand that all of life is vanity. Nothing truly matters in this world. What's important is where you're at on the other side of that last breath. Given time, you know, each of us will find ourselves next in line to step into eternity. And it's part of the process that causes, that God uses in our life, that causes us to look more intently towards heaven. It helps us loosen our grip on the things of this world and look, lift our eyes to the things of the next. Jacob has wrestled with God. He's clung to him, not willing to let go unless God blesses him. And, you know, uh, you remember the Lord looked at Jacob and said, what is your name? And I wonder if that moment, if Jacob wasn't holding on to the Lord's heel. And Jacob said, heel catcher. Same as when I was born. And I'm sick of it. And God took Jacob alone when he did this. He, he got him by himself. He didn't humiliate Jacob in front of others. And I love that about God. He corrects and he convicts me privately re, uh, regarding my failures and flaws. It's just between him and me. He's just loving. He's gentle. Jacob still was struggling and making mistakes and finally he comes to Bethel. Finally, now he's broken. Now he's broken beyond description. He's lost his, his beloved wife, Rachel. Deborah's gone. She was a bridge, right, to his memory of his mother. And it says in verse 21, it says, then Israel journeyed. Jacob's a pilgrim now, right? He knows now that his home is not this world. He understands it. He's not holding on to the things of this world any longer. What used to be important to him is no longer 
uh, meaningful to him. Now Israel journeys as a pilgrim. He's a broken man. Again, not holding on to the things of this world. And he becomes this remarkable pilgrim. And as we're going we're gonna to see this, as we continue to run across him through the study of, of the book of Genesis, when we suffer the loss of a loved one, or whether God allows some tragic event to enter into our lives, we need to allow those things to turn our heads to heaven. To keep our hearts from getting bitter, but to look to heaven. The things that we're enduring, the things that are going on around us, you know, the, the condition our family is in, right? Whatever we may be going through, we need to let all of it stir us. It should be something that puts fuel in our spiritual tank. We need to allow it to help us set our affections on things above. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jacob is broken. He's a changed man. He truly is Israel now, truly governed by God. And it's worth noting as you read through the Bible that Jacob and Israel, both those names are used. They're switched back and forth. When the nation is walking uh, before the Lord, walking in obedience, you know it's called Israel, right? But when the nation is in rebellion, when they're struggling, then Jacob is used. Here it says, then Jacob journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. In verse 32, and it happened when Israel, it's a reference to Jacob now, dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. And that's all the details we have. Right? The one person that may have been able to comfort Jacob was probably Bilhah, because Bilhah was Rachel's concubine, uh, handmaiden. She had more of a connection to Rachel than anyone else, except maybe Joseph, right? So somehow, Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, goes into Bilhah, Jacob's concubine, Rachel's handmaiden, and he has a, a sexual relationship with her. On top of the death of Deborah and Rachel, now his oldest son engages in this unimaginable sin and goes in and sleeps with his wife. And, and we're told that Israel heard about it. Reuben and Bilhah are lucky that it was Israel that heard about it and not Jacob. Had it been Jacob that heard about it, they probably both would have been put to death. But Jacob is broken at this point, and he doesn't do anything. You know what? He carries this terrible hurt in his heart for years. How do we know that? Later on, when he's prophesying over his sons, uh, at the end of his life, leaning on his staff, right? Um, it's going to come out then. And you know what? The lesson is this. No one who commits sexual immorality gets away with it. No one commits sin and gets away with it. Right? In the law at the end of Deuteronomy, 
it says that those that don't get caught, it says God will deal with them. No one gets away with sin. It says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. Verse 23, the sons of Leah and Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Again, Reuben is the only one of the boys in this list that there's any commentary about. The Holy Spirit moves Moses to comment and to let us know, for some reason, I don't pretend to know why, but the Holy Spirit wants us to know that Reuben is Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, was Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. And we don't know what kind of contact that Jacob's had with Isaac, his father, uh, during this whole time. We're not told, right? Here we have Jacob. He's 120 years old. Isaac, uh, his father, is 180 years old. And Isaac's been blind for a long time now, right? And you just wonder what it was like. And again, you got to remember, Jacob's daughter Dinah's been raped, right? His sons, Simeon and Levi have committed mass murder, right? Uh, you know, stealing from, uh, slaughtering the men of, of uh, Shechem, his boys, uh, then looted. Deborah died right in front of him. Rachel's passed away, went on to be with the Lord. And the oldest, his oldest son sleeps with one of his wives. And now this broken pilgrim comes to the one who he once deceived in order to get a blessing. Now he's in no need of, of blessing. Now knowing that nothing in this world is of any lasting value, he comes, he sits next to his, his father. And I wonder if Isaac was hoping that Jacob and Esau would come and see him at the end of his life. I don't know. But this time when Jacob comes, his dad says, who is it? And I bet you he doesn't say it's Esau. You know, he probably just says, it's me, Dad. It's Jacob, your son. Verse 28, now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his son Esau and Jacob buried him. These 120-year-old fraternal twins bury their dad. I mean, we need to always remember again, these are real people. There are real emotions that, that went on here. There were real triumphs in their lives. There were real tragedies in their lives, real victories, real failures. You know what? These people are just like us. And the Lord saw them through it all. He delivered them through it all and welcomed them into heaven. And that's what he's doing with us. He's working in us. He's causing our hearts to loosen the grip we have on the things of this world, causing our, our hearts to long for heaven. And he's working through us. He wants to work through us in such a way we share the gospel with those who don't know him, that don't love God. You know, 
the blessing that God has for people. He wants to work through us to share that with a, a dark and dying world. You know, if you've drifted at all, even a little bit is too much. If you've drifted, the encouragement of this chapter is to get back to Bethel. God will receive you and embrace you. You know, this chapter for me, I mean, it's a terribly sad chapter. But seeing Jacob become the man that's governed by God, you know what? God is so patient to work through Jacob's life. I mean, that gives me tremendous hope. If he's patient with Jacob, he's patient with me. That's so important to me. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, and we pray that your word would just have that eternal effect on our life that you desire it to have, Lord. Let it wash over us. Let your truth just sink deep into our hearts, Lord, drawing us to yourself, a fresh commitment, fresh recommitment, Lord. God, help us get back to that place of our first love if we've strayed, because that's the place of blessing and revelation. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.